0: Flaccid myelitis is in the media a lot lately. It has been likened to polio, and cases seem to be on the rise. I'm Dr. Matthew Stanbrook, Deputy Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm speaking with one of the authors of a practice article published in the CMAJ on acute flaccid myelitis. Dr. Peter Gill is a general pediatrician and researcher at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. He's joining me today to discuss the latest clinical information on this rare but serious condition. Peter, welcome.
1: Hi, Matthew. Thanks for having me on the podcast today.
0: Great to have you. And Peter, I I should mention up front that you and I know each other before this because you are one of the members of our editorial advisory board at CMAJ. And so uh, given that, I just want to make it clear to our listeners that Peter was not involved in the decision-making process for this article that he authored or in in the editing process at any point. Uh, And Peter, you had some help from some colleagues in writing this, didn't you?
1: Yeah, that's right. So I just want to acknowledge my co-authors, uh, Dr. Ari Bittenden, who's a pediatric infectious disease physician at SickKids, and Dr. Ye, who's a pediatric neurologist at SickKids as well. And they're both real content experts on acute flaccid myelitis. And I want to thank them for their help
0: with this article. And we certainly appreciate their contribution and yours on this article. So let's get right into it. Peter, what is acute flaccid myelitis?
1: So before we talk about acute flaccid myelitis, we need to step back and discuss acute flaccid paralysis. So acute flaccid paralysis is a syndrome of rapid muscle weakness. Historically, the most well-known cause of acute flaccid paralysis was polio, which fortunately has been nearly eradicated worldwide. However, acute flaccid paralysis can be due to several etiologies, such as Guillain-Barre, muscle disorders, and systemic diseases. Acute flaccid myelitis, however, is a specific type of acute flaccid paralysis, which is due to an injury to the anterior horn cells of the spinal cord. In acute flaccid myelitis, muscle weakness is a hallmark presenting feature.
0: So this is a subtype of of acute flaccid paralysis, like what polio and other things can cause. But what causes acute flaccid myelitis in in these waves
1: of epidemics we've seen in in recent years, including right now? That's a good question. So with the near eradication of polio viruses, other non-polio enteroviruses, the predominant cause of acute flaccid myelitis in children. There's a strong association with peak enterovirus infections and clusters of acute flaccid myelitis. In particular, specific enterovirus strains, such as EVD68 and EVA71, have emerged as the predominant viruses associated with acute flaccid myelitis. EVD68 was likely responsible for the 2014 and 2016 clusters of acute flaccid myelitis in North America, but thus far, so in this 2018, has not been a clear culprit implicated in this cluster.
0: So we've been hearing about it in the media and in the medical literature now because of these epidemics, including the current one. Um, why now is this happening? Why weren't we hearing about this a decade or two ago? It, it seems it's only been in the last sort of five to ten years that we've seen this. So why is that?
1: Yeah, so, sporadic cases of acute fasciomyelitis are so certainly. Um, not new or unusual. What's really new is that in the past six to eight years, there have been several clusters of cases during the late summer and early fall in North America and in other places. And these clusters have coincided with the usual antivirus season, which in the Northern hemisphere, usually is during the late summer and early fall. Really the first major cluster was in 2014 with a large number of cases in California and Colorado. But in the same year, we also had reported cases in Canada, in British Columbia, Alberta, Manitoba, Ontario, uh, and Nova Scotia. And these clusters tend to occur more in a biannual pattern with a spike in 2016 and again in 2018 with our current clusters. And so we talk a lot about poliovirus and these currently non-polio enteroviruses. But it's important to keep in mind that polioviruses are actually a type of enterovirus. So acute flaccid myelitis is somewhat similar to poliovirus. virus there are some important distinctions i think it's important that non-polio enterovirus infections are very common in children but a, a very small number result in acute flaccid myelitis on the other hand when we had large cases of polio virus that led to acute flaccid paralysis approximately 0.1 percent of affected patients developed acute flaccid paralysis which is quite high or a serious outcome. But so far, these are key of cases. While they're coming up, they're still quite rare.
0: So they are quite rare, but they're, they're happening, I, I, it seems, in, in more prominent clusters than in previous years. Do, do we know why this has happened recently as opposed to before uh, in, in terms of where these particular virulent or, or more pathogenic uh, strains of enterovirus have come from to be causing this now?
1: Uh, Unfortunately, no, we don't have a a sense of why in the past six to eight years there's been an increase in these clusters of cases, particularly in 2014, 16 and and 18. That's still quite unknown. And there's still a lot of further research to be done to understand why this has happened. And cases are also not unique to North America. There's also been other cases reported in Europe, Japan, uh, China and Taiwan. So it's a phenomenon that we don't fully understand. And there's lots of active research going on to this area.
0: And you mentioned that it uh, comes from the same family as polio. Do we know whether these particular strains that are causing the clusters now evolved from polio, or are they just in the same family that have evolved on their own to become more virulent so that they start to behave like polio? Is that known?
1: Uh, at this stage, it's not not known yet. And I think the challenge is that there's been associations where we suspect that these enteroviruses are associated with a spike in clusters of cases. But in many cases in children that are affected, uh, the enterovirus is not uh, isolated from the cerebral spinal fluid um, or from the patient at all and other specimens. Really, I think enterovirus D68 was strongly associated with the 2014 cluster, but really at this stage, it's largely associations, and we don't really have a true causative uh, etiology. In terms of the evolution over time, Again, that similarly, we don't have a good understanding of why now whether there's been new mutations that have happened there's i think more questions than answers at this phase all right well let's talk about how to recognize this
0: disease who does it typically affect and how does it present usually
1: so q-class in my typically affects children between the ages of 4 and 15 years in over 90 percent of cases there's a preceding non-specific viral illness such as an upper response or a tract infection or a fever and over the next two to four days patients develop sudden onset limb weakness. The weakness is often associated with pain, paresthesias, and areflexia. It's also important to note that around 25% of these patients will also have cranial nerve abnormalities, such as a facial droop associated with the lower motor neuron, cranial nerve 7 palsy, and brainstem involvement, such as difficulty swallowing or with handling secretion. So how do children get this infection? How is it spread? So enterovirus, can cause many different clinical syndromes, including a, a mild respiratory tract infection or a cold, gastroenteritis, hand-foot-mouth disease, or herpangina. The vast majority of these infections are mild and do not lead to any serious complications. And these viruses are mostly spread through direct or indirect contact with respiratory droplets or via the fecal-oral route.
0: So if a physician in a primary care clinic or an emergency department or a pediatrician, if they suspect that acute flaccid myelitis may be going on, uh, what diagnostic tests are ordered to identify this problem?
1: So if a physician suspects acute flaccid myelitis in a clinic, The patient should be urgently sent to the emergency department, and if they're well, ideally to a tertiary care setting. Similarly, if a physician in the emergency department is seeing a patient with suspected acute flaccid myelitis, they should try and arrange the can urgent transfer to a tertiary care setting. Uh, These patients require further specialized infectious workup and neuroimaging. In particular, they require an MRI with contrast of the brain and the spine to look for the typical gray matter lesions that we see in acute flaccid myelitis. Usually after the MRI, there's a more detailed infectious workup that follows, including a lumbar puncture and respiratory and stool samples to look for infectious agents, which are mainly enteroviruses. US Centers for Disease Control Prevention has developed a specific case definition of AFM, which is helpful to get an understanding of what we look for on for diagnosis. So we suspect the case is confirmed when there's acute vocal limb weakness and the typical MRI findings. Or it's probable if we see that limb weakness with the CSF
0: pleocytosis. You alluded, I think, earlier to Guillain Barre syndrome as, as being a cause of a similar syndrome. How do clinicians in practice distinguish between Guillain Barre syndrome and acute flaccid myelitis?
1: That's a good question, and, and they can seem very uh, similar on clinical presentation. The main differences are that. Uh, classically, Guillain-Barré syndrome presents with symmetric and ascending weakness, whereas acute flaccid myelitis, on the other hand, usually has asymmetric weakness and it's usually unilateral. Often, there's also findings on the MRI. So, typically, uh, in acute flaccid myelitis, an MRI will show T2 hyperintensities in the gray matter of the spinal cord and often enhancement of the nerve roots. But in Guillain-Barré syndrome, while we see nerve root enhancement, there is no spinal cord gray matter involvement.
0: So that highlights the importance of MRI in, in this situation then. What should happen next?
1: So because acute flaccid myelitis can progress quite rapidly, it should be considered and managed as a medical emergency. So urgent referral to tertiary care center is warranted because around 24 to 52% of these patients need to be admitted to the intensive care unit out for ventilatory support and nutritional support. In terms of treatment, unfortunately to date, nothing has clearly been shown to be effective in patients. In practice, Treatments are usually considered on a case-by-case basis and guided by specialty involvement, usually pediatric neurology and infectious diseases. These include treatments such as high-dose uh, intravenous steroids, uh, intravenous immune globulin or IVIG, and then sometimes phoresis.
0: Can you go a little more into what situations might lead you to want to use therapies like that and what situations uh, you would deem that it would not be required to use such therapies?
1: So it really, in general, each, each patient's considered on an individual basis. and treatments in terms of their, uh, invasiveness, the specific types of treatment depend on how severe the case is. So if a child has mild unilateral limb weakness and otherwise seems well, um, in some cases, you know, it may be suggested to start with steroids. In other cases, if the child is quite unwell and is in the intensive care units, you know, with significant weakness, is on ventilatory support. Often in that case, more um, invasive treatments are considered such as plasmapheresis. Really treatments guided by specialty involvement and there have not been any specific guidelines or recommendations to guide treatment specific situations because none of them have been considered to be um, effective in the majority of cases. So really it comes down to specialty services to help guide what they feel is the most appropriate treatment for the patient guided by each each clinical
0: presentation. So in a child who presents with limb weakness, what what is the time period in which they're in danger of progressing to needing ventilatory support if they're going to, and the time beyond which they they would be deemed to be safe? Um, Do you have to monitor them hospital and do vital capacity measurements the way we would do in Guillain-Barre syndrome, for example?
1: So certainly they need to be in a hospitalised setting and to be monitored quite closely. And from most of the cases in the literature, in general, the evolution has been over two to four days. So certainly if there's going to be an acute deterioration, it will happen within that, that time frame. So in general, if it's been a week or longer and there has not been progression, then it's likely that they will not progress further. However, in these cases, again, there's been a lot of individual variation, and and clinical severities have, have ranged. So it's important, I think, to err on the side of caution for longer times in terms of admissions. There hadn't, there is not clear guidelines in terms of monitoring forced vital capacity, for example. But certainly, if there's a concern from a respiratory standpoint, it would certainly be reasonable to do that. Although in children, depending on the age, that can be difficult to do in practice. Um, but certainly you know having a high index of suspicion and close uh, vital sign monitoring is incredibly important in these patients
0: certainly so once the acute illness resolves what are the long term complications of this disease
1: so most patients unfortunately do have some form of lasting impairment the studies so far that have looked at patients from the 2014-16 clusters have described persistent deficits in most children after four to six months follow-up, with full recovery in only around 8 to 18% of patients. Further on, 8 to 14% of patients have either required assisted devices for ambulation or complete dependence on caregivers. At this stage also, because it's been fairly recent, the cases, we don't have long-term follow-up beyond 6 to 12 months of age. Fortunately, there have been no deaths reported in 2018. In the U.S., there were two deaths reported in 2014 and one in 2017. So while children can be quite unwell and quite sick, very few children have died.
0: And would it be fair to say that getting the patient to a tertiary care center would be a critical factor in determining if they live or die?
1: I think that would be very important just because often of the number of patients that require intensive care support I think is an, is an indication that many of these patients can progress quite quickly and do need tertiary care, um, ancillary support to help with ventilation, nutrition, and for subspecialty service involvement good to know
0: that uh, there have been no deaths so far this year uh, perhaps that relates to the increased awareness around this what are you hearing peter from the parents you encounter in clinical practice from day to day are are, are they raising this with you are they worried about it
1: certainly i think that there's been a lot of media coverage of this of acute falcet myelitis both in both in canada and the united states and it's certainly a uh, a troubling and scary disease both for families and I think also for clinicians. So again I think radar, it's the importance of early specialty service involvement. So families are worried about this and I think there's a lot of awareness around this and asking about this and I think particularly it's challenging because the symptoms of enteroviruses are common cold and gastroenteritis, which we see so often in practice but it's also important to be reassuring that majority of these infections are mild and uncomplicated and that a QFAS in my is, is still incredibly rare um, but it's important to give good education so that if they do see any signs of you know of a child having weakness in one limb or any abnormal to finding actually to, to to see someone soon um, and to be whether that can be a family doctor a pediatrician, or go to the emergency department just because of the the rapidity of these these um, illnesses can progress it's rare and yet the, the description
0: you give of it is virtually identical to what polio epidemics used to be like. And we've forgotten, I think, being a couple of generations removed from when polio was a regular phenomenon, which we've now prevented with vaccines. But should we be worried that one of these enteroviruses is going to become the new polio and we're going to see pandemics of this uh, arising from one of these uh, evolved enteroviruses? Is that on the horizon from uh, the colleagues you've
1: talked to? At this stage, it's I think too early to make any conclusions. I think certainly with the, you know, with the clusters of cases there's been associations, but there hasn't been a, a continual increase in number of cases on an annual basis with an exponential rise. There's been clusters that have come and gone. I think that's certainly something that's, that may evolve, but I think at this stage it's really, uh, I think I'm unable to comment on that specifically and that's not something that I feel other people have, have mentioned so far.
0: Is there any work being done on a vaccine for this?
1: So there has been some work done on a the vaccine. There's actually been a specific vaccine developed for eva 71 um, which is known to cause hand, foot, and mouth disease. Unfortunately, this vaccine is not licensed in Canada, but it is used in other countries mainly to to prevent hand, foot, and, and mouth disease. There is some very, uh, you know, early day research done on uh, and EV-D68 with some research in mouse models, but in terms of anything that would be clinically applicable to humans, I think it's quite, quite a long ways away, but it's important that it's an important area of research. But again, it's challenging because of the, how common these mild illnesses are with the rarity of the outcome, but it's certainly an important avenue of research.
0: Is it known whether the polio vaccine affords any cross-protection? For example, has anyone looked at the cases we have of these epidemic acute flaccid myelitis cases to see whether unvaccinated children for for polio have had more severe uh, cases than those who've been vaccinated?
1: It's a good question and as far as I'm aware of I've I've not um, known of anyone doing that. I think also the challenge with that is that in many of the cases of a key acid myelitis. Uh, an enterovirus is not uh, isolated from the patient, either from the CSF or from other tissue types. So in oftentimes there isn't a virus to actually study in the lab to compare with other other viruses, which I think is what's suggested that it's many association with clusters. But I think that's something that, well if there are more cases that will come in the future that will be a certain an avenue a research to look if there's any specific similarity with the polio virus although at this stage i think it's it's unclear whether there is now
0: okay so peter if you have one take-home message to leave clinicians with uh, about acute
1: flaccid myelitis what would it be so the most important thing would be to think about it you know, this is a this is a condition that it's rare but if it's not on someone's differential diagnosis, it won't get diagnosed. So you need to high index of suspicion. And just think about it in any children that present with common viral prodromal symptoms and vague complaints of pain or weakness.
0: Thank you very much, Peter, for uh, sharing your expertise with us. And I, I hope this information will be of help to uh, a lot of uh, our listeners. Thanks for being with us today.
1: Great. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
0: I've been speaking with Dr. Peter Gill, pediatrician and uh, researcher at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. To read the Practice article he co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. While you're there, you can browse and listen to our many past episodes, and you can leave us a rating. I'm Dr. Matthew Stanbrook, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.